Miss the kiddos. Miss Kristen is back there. Good morning, CPC. Good to see you guys. Um, I feel a little bit schizophrenic. Uh, typically, you see me leading the musical worship in service. Um, recently, I've been helping out with the high school uh, in the interim before, while they're hiring uh, for that position. And now that Jerry decided to have a child, I'm, I'm up here this morning. So uh, if I start singing in the middle of my message, it's just habit. Um, so if you don't know, if you're new, if you're visiting, my name is John Grabiel, uh, and I, I'm going to be uh, with you guys this morning. You're stuck with me because, as I mentioned, Jerry, our lead pastor, and more importantly, Megan, his wife, decided to have their fourth daughter on Monday. And we, speaking of which, we have a, a picture of Liesl. There she is. So we want to um, send congrats and, and thoughts and prayers um, to Jerry and to Megan in uh, their coming days of what is sure to be certain insomnia. Um, so back in August, we launched um, our series, Roots. And week by week as a church, we've been going through the Bible, and we've been using the Jesus Storybook Bible as our guide, uh, as you could tell from the video. And so uh, that was in August. Now we're in February. So as you saw, we are in Jesus' ministry at this point. He's going out, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and today we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bible, grab that. If you have your phone with your Bible app, you can grab that, or you can follow along on the screens. Today's text is Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So there you have it. The first church potluck, the sacred picnic, or the holy pitch-in, whatever you want to call it. Now, since Christmas, we've been, uh, we looked at the birth of Jesus, and it moved us into the New Testament. And it's been an interesting struggle week to week to figure out which text we want to use. Because up until now, when we, particularly when we're looking at the Old Testament, say we were looking at Moses in the Red Sea or Jonah, we had one text to pull from. Well, now that we're in the New Testament... We look at these, uh, these events and these miracles and we say, well, which text do we want to lo- use? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have four variations on the same uh, uh, illustration of Jesus' ministry. So we have four options to choose from. Now, we chose Matthew, but I, I say that with a-, a little bit of a caveat because we're going to jump into some of the other Gospels this morning as well. Um, now, um, the-, the first thing, that- having said that, the first thing we need to understand is that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels. 
The only miracle outside of the resurrection to appear in all four Gospels. And that leads us to ask the question, why? What's significant about this story that all four Gospel writers wanted to record it? And so, as I thought about that question, I think there's a couple possibilities to think through. First is just the sheer number of people. Now, we know the story is the feeding of the 5,000. But if we looked at what Matthew said, Matthew said that there was 5,000 men besides women and children. So there were women and children there as well. So if we kind of do the math and just kind of add some things up, if we added wives and children and pastors by who just wanted to jump into the crowd, we're looking at more about 15,000 people. And scholars kind of agree around that number, about 15,000 people. That's a huge number. Now, in comparison, we can gather that the resurrection story in the Gospels only have about 500 witnesses. So this is a miracle that has 15,000 witnesses to it. Now, I was trying to get my head around that number, 15,000. And so I started to think in the most logical way that I know how, and that's to think through which sporting arenas have about 15,000 seats in them. And so does anybody know? There's actually one close to home that has about 15,000. Does anybody know? Mackey. Somebody said Mackey Arena. The home of the unbeatable, the unstoppable, the 16 and 9, ranked fourth in the Big Ten, (laughs) boiler basketball team. (laughs) I see a lot of these and a lot of yeses. Uh, I I have to admit, I say that with a little bit of sarcasm, because if I have to remind you, I am from Kentucky, who happens to be 24. Oh, wait. They won by 34 yesterday. They're 25 and 0 now. Uh, but sorry, we'll go back to Mackey Arena. Mackey Arena seats 14,240 people. So if you've ever been to a, a Purdue home game or you've seen a game on TV, Mackey Arena seats about 15,000 people. That's what it looks like to have 15,000 people in it. Now, the gospel writers, all four of them, I think, see 15,000 as a significant number and worth including. Now, I'm going to get just a little bit heady for a second. This is number two. Scholars uh, believe that another reason that this event is included in all four Gospels is because it's an external witness to the validity of the text. Okay, and that's just, those are some big words. But basically all it means is when you look back to the Bible or ancient texts or, or scriptures, you have to start looking at, is this trustworthy? Is it worth reading? Is, does it have validity to it? Is it viable? And one of the ways they do that is you look at, first you look at the internal witness. You look at the, you read through it and you think, is it contradicting itself? Does it, is it saying the right things? Does it make sense? And then the second is the external witness. What's happening around? What's, what was the history? Who was the audience? What was it intended for? And now, the reason this, this is significant for us is that the Gospels began to be circulated in Palestine about 40 years after the events took place. So you can imagine if you were there at the feeding of the 5,000, there's a pretty good probability that there's quite a few people who were there who are still alive. The very things that the gospel writers were talking about, the people that were involved, the people who were fed that day, a lot of them are still alive when the gospels begin to be circulated. So if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, said something that was a little bit out out of place or they were exaggerating, a lot of people would have seen it and said, that's not the way it happened. So that's a pretty bold move to put out there a story that 15,000 people were involved in. So that's number two. Number three, one more reason I believe that this, this event is significant and that the gospel writers include it in all four is that I think Jesus is making a significant statement at the feeding of the 5,000. He's making an announcement. The reason I say that is because elsewhere in the Gospels, we see Jesus perform miracles, and Jesus will tell his disciples, 
keep that under wraps. Don't go around telling people that I just did that. I'm going to heal this person, but don't go around blabbing it. Okay, keep it on the down low. Don't post it, don't Instagram it, don't tweet it. Just keep it under, under wraps. This is different. There's 15,000 people here. And, and by what he's doing, he's making a statement. And it's significant for us because of its connection to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, as we saw back in the fall when we were looking at the Exodus, we see that the, the Israelites are out in the desert and they're wandering and they're tired and they're thirsty and they're hungry and God provides for them what? Manna, manna from heaven. He provided them bread and he provided them just enough bread. So the prophets said that when the Messiah would come, he would provide bread for the people from heaven. So Jesus is making an announcement. He's saying that this Messiah that you've been waiting on, that's me. I am the Messiah, and I'm not just going to provide you with enough food. I'm going to provide you with more than you could ever need. So those are three reasons I think that the gospel writers probably include this this story in all four. We've wrestled with that a little bit. There's one more piece of background information that I think is important for us before we kind of dive into the story, and that's this. The gospel writers, right before they get to the feeding of the 5,000, they give us a glimpse of another feast. Right before we get to the feeding of the 5,000, we kind of get a window into the feast at Herod's palace. Herod uh, had arrested John. Now he's throwing a feast. And at the end of the feast, we know that John is beheaded and his head is put on a silver platter. That's how the feast ends. So we see this gluttonous feast that's happening at Herod's palace. And then right up against it, we run into Jesus' feast of the 15,000. And I think those two stories, when they're butted up against each other, are pretty significant. So John's been killed, and we see Jesus in verse 1 withdrawing. The very first verse says, when Jesus heard this, what what that's referring to is when he found out about John's beheading. So he finds out about it, and he withdraws to a deserted place. Now, a lot of people think that this is Jesus kind of going into survival mode, thinking like, well, if they killed John, how much worse things are they going to do to me? And so he just kind of runs to a place and hides. Now, I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is, is grieving. This is John, the preparer, the one who baptized Jesus. This is Jesus' cousin. This is Jesus' friend. And he's beheaded. And he takes time to grieve. And I think this is an instance where we get to see Jesus wrestle with what it means to be fully divine as well as be fully human. But it's not long before the crowds find out where Jesus is. And they catch up to him, and we know what happens from there. Jesus is teaching, he's healing, and the day goes on and on, and it gets late, and people start to get hungry. And with five loaves and two fish, he feeds some 15,000 people. Now, I told you that, you know, this is in all four Gospels, and all of them uh, have a, a little bit of information here, a little bit of information there. So I told you we were going to dive into a couple, uh, at least one other one. We're going to look at John. So if you have your Bible, turn it over to John chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. John chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 says this, When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. It stinks to be Philip at this point. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread 
for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? So John includes something that Matthew doesn't. A boy. There's a boy who has five small barley loaves and two small fish. A boy, young, with five small loaves of bread and two small fish. Now, what what can we gather about the boy? What do we know about the boy? Well, we know that he's young. He's referred to as a boy. But we also know that he's poor. And that's because of John's description of the bread. John says he has five barley loaves. Barley bread in the first century was known as the poor man's bread or, or the bread of the poor. So th- this is a, 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 a small, ordinary, poor person's lunch, basically. And, and barley bread would have been about the size of a Twinkie, and it would have been dried and kind of crusty and flaky so that he could carry it for, you know, travel with it without it spoiling. So you have this, this boy with five crusty biscuits and two fish. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear about this story, when I think about the feeding of the 5,000, for some reason, my mind has been kind of warped into thinking that when I, in my bread, in my bread, in my mind, when I see the bread, it's five loaves of this beautiful, you know, golden brown French bread that smells amazing. And the two fish are these big fat salmon fillets, you know. And Jesus says, yeah, I can do something with this. You know, I can make this work. But that's not the case. It's dried up biscuits, and the fish probably would have been something more like a pickled sardine, something you could travel with, very small. So the poor, the ordinary, the young boy is offering up his small, ordinary, insignificant meal. And what Jesus is able to do with the small and with the poor and with the ordinary and with the insignificant is nothing short of miraculous. 15,000 people who followed Jesus to this secluded place out of the way were fed and fed until they couldn't eat anymore. They were stuffed and there were still leftovers to be had. I find it interesting that all four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all explicitly number the loaves and the fish. They say five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish. They all say that, all four of them. I find that interesting because I, I try to put myself in that position of if I was given the task to record this miracle, it would have been really easy for me to just say, well, there was some kid there who had some bread and some fish, but not very much. You know, it wasn't enough to feed 15,000. But they all explicitly number this. And I think as disciples and as Christ followers in this room this morning, I think that we can learn something from this. And I, I, I'm taking this from a commentator. His name is Frederick Bruner. And he, this is what he said. If you have a pen... Get your pen, and I want you to write this down. Disciples should always count to eight. Disciples should always count to eight. Meaning that the disciples are only counting their immediate realities. Not the reality that should impress them most, which is the reality that their rabbi, that they're following, is the Son of God. Capable of miracles and healings and walking on water and last week calming the storm. Disciples, we, us, Christ followers, should always count to eight. We often feel that we have an insignificant or insufficient five and two when we try to address our five thousands. 
The Christian faith is nothing if it can only count to seven. If it does not believe that Jesus is risen and can do things beyond our own realities. Disciples should always count to eight. Amen? All right. Counting to eight requires faith. It requires seeing past our realities. It requires that we look for the realities that God is already crafting. And it requires that we recognize our role in kingdom stuff. When 15,000 people are gathered and they get a glimpse of God at work, a glimpse of the kingdom, it changes the world. Imagine for a second, if you will, when the news gets back to Herod, who's had his feast, when the news gets back to him that 15,000 people went out into the middle of nowhere to listen to a carpenter from Bethlehem. That'd be a huge threat. He would have seen it as an uprising, an earthly kingdom in its early stages. That's a huge threat to his own kingdom. And those with Jesus, those who were fed that day and watched Jesus heal and heard him teach, began to murmur and they began to talk amongst themselves and say, Jesus is going to be this, he's going to be a new king. He's going to sit on a throne. They didn't quite get it. Commentator Leon Morris says this, he, referring to Jesus, he who is already king has come to open his kingdom to us. But in our blindness, we try to force him to be the kind of king that we want. Thus, we fail to get the king that we want and also lose the kingdom that he offers. If you're a Christ follower in this room this morning, we're called to participate in something. We're called to participate in this kingdom that God has opened up to us. And not just participate, but bring people along with us. Jesus didn't say in the Great Commission to go and make church attenders. He said to go and make disciples. Go and make people who will offer up their insignificant, poor, ordinary lunches for the kingdom. And we're invited into this thing, this thing called church. We're invited into this thing called the kingdom, and we each have a significant part to play. Now, I want to shift gears just for a minute and talk about a friend of mine. I have a friend named... Uh, we'll, call, we'll call her Brooke this morning. I have a friend named Brooke. And on Monday afternoons, I spend a couple hours with Brooke. Uh, Brooke's full of life. She has an amazing smile. She's an amazing artist. And she loves nothing more than her old black Labrador Jack. I hear about Jack a lot. There's something I've come to learn about Brooke, and that's that she often comes to school hungry. You see, Brooke is a classmate of my daughter Emma's kindergarten. She's in her, her kindergarten class. She's a classmate. And every Monday from about noon to two, I go and I volunteer with Emma's class and help the teacher out with anything she needs help with. And so I've developed some cool relationships with 26, five, and six-year-olds. And one of those six-year-olds is, is Brooke. And I've seen Brooke struggle week in and week out just coming to school hungry. She's restless, she can't focus, she's grumpy, and I watch her struggle through school, and I watch her depend upon the school for her lunch and for snacks. Now, I bring this up because I think we either like to think that things like this don't happen on the north side of Indianapolis, or we naively let ourselves believe that poverty and hunger are confined to certain parts of our city. 
Just this past week, I learned of a ZPCer who's going out of their way to help a homeless man who's been using Marsh, the grocery store right down the road, as a place to stay at night because it's brutally cold outside. Marsh is a half a mile from where we're sitting right now. It's a dangerous thing when we start to think that our world is the world. The north side is not immune to poverty. It's not immune to hunger. And so as Christ followers, we're called to bring heaven on earth. So what does that look like? What does that look like for the man who uses Marsh as a warm place on a cold night? What does that look like for Brooke who comes to school hungry? We're not to wait on heaven to come to us. We're called to bring heaven on earth now. We're called to be ushers, to join with God in kingdom stuff. Now, two weeks ago, Jerry introduced us to the ordinary brown house that we affectionately call the Jeremiah house. Jeremiah house is an example of us being about kingdom stuff. It's an example of what is possible when we see beyond the seemingly ordinary, when we can see beyond the seemingly insignificant and small and look to a place where we see the potential in the ordinary for kingdom stuff to take place. You may or may not know this, but every Friday, ZPC opens its doors for two hours, and over that course of two hours, something beautiful happens. Something kingdom happens in those two hours on a Friday. The Zionsville Food Pantry is housed right here within our walls. And every Friday, those in our community who are in need of food for themselves or for their family can come and receive food and personal care items. It's that simple. They come and a need is met. The pantry is something that God is already working through. God is at work here at ZPC, whether you know it or not, on Friday afternoons. There are approximately 120 families every week that utilize the food pantry. 120 families. Last month, the pantry saw its largest month ever. Well, in 23 years. So in the past 23 years, last month was its largest number. 490 individuals utilized the pantry last month. And I think we can learn something from Jesus in this passage. Jesus not only cares about hungry people. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say, I don't care about them. We care about hungry people. Jesus not only cares about hungry people, but he does something about their hunger. He feeds them. He doesn't hand out a tract or dole out advice on life or advise, hey, you know what, just fast. Or just go somewhere else. I hear they can help you. He feeds, and so can we. So this morning, you've already been introduced to the the ordinary brown house. I'm going to introduce you to the ordinary brown bag. Okay? This is just your typical ordinary brown bag from the grocery store. But when you leave today your family will be given a bag that looks exactly like this. And it's simple. Attached to the bag is some information about the food pantry. Inside the information, there's a list. They call it their top 10 list of things that they always need. So today when you leave, as a family, you'll take a bag and you'll take it home. And sometime in the next week, you'll probably end up at the grocery store. And when you're there... Look through this list and fill this bag up with items that are on it. And next week, when you come to church, you bring it with you. Simple. Now, 
As you walked in today, there was a bin out there that had these bags hanging on it. That bin will be there waiting for you. And when you come in with your bag, you'll place the bag in the bin. Simple, right? Now, here's the catch. Week after week after week, that bin will be there. And it will be calling your name. It will say, please come to me, pick up a new bag, take it with, let me go with you to the grocery store. You fill it up and you bring me back and put me in the bin again. Week after week, it will be there. Brothers and sisters, this is kingdom work. It's not a charity. Mere charity doesn't work because charity can often become more about guilt relief than about kingdom work. This is kingdom work. It's using the ordinary, whether it's a can of tuna, whether it's toothpaste, or whether it's laundry detergent. It's using the ordinary to bring heaven on earth. To usher the kingdom that Jesus talked about and had in mind 2,000 years ago when he was out in this you know, deserted, secluded place with 15,000 of his closest friends. Amen? Let's stand together.